and welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, and everyone else who's part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Shelby Day, and I'm Senior Policy Counsel at Family Equality Council. Today, we're talking about the Every Child Deserves a Family Act. This is part two. And with us today, we have two men who grew up uh, in the foster care system who are going to share their very important stories with us today. As we discussed in part one, the Every Child Deserves a Family Act is a federal bill that prohibits child welfare agencies that receive federal funding from employing discriminatory practices in adoption and foster care placements, but based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or marital status of potential parents, as well as the sexual orientation or gender identity of foster youth. As I said, today our two guests are Christopher Sharp and James McIntyre. Christopher is a 27-year-old Texas native. He formerly served as a legislative aide for Senator Patty Murray and was a congressional fellow for the Congressional LGBT Equality Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. As a former foster child and homeless youth, Christopher has spent his entire professional career working to improve public policies affecting children, youth, and family. He holds a Bachelor of Social Work from the University of Houston downtown and a master's of public administration from Texas Southern University. We also have James McIntyre. James's life was not like that of most other children growing up in Illinois. When he was four years old, he was removed from his biological family's home and put into the foster care system. From that day on, James's life was one state-funded program after another. Now James is an advocate for kids in foster care, and he returns to the place that ultimately showed him that he had a voice, and he volunteers his time on various fundraising committees. James strongly believes that the state must focus on those that they promise to take care of, and he's been part of the Foster Care Alumni of America, Illinois chapter for the last five years, where he's brought awareness to the issues that face current youth in care. Thank you both for being here today. We really appreciate your willingness to share your very important stories with us. Christopher, would you like to get us started and share some of your story and your personal journey through the child welfare system? Yeah, no problem. So I actually grew up in foster care in Texas. Uh, I entered the system when I was a little older. Um, I was about 10. Um, and I, um, I never really stayed in one place too long. I was just chronically moving from placement to placement to placement. Um, I think part of it was that I was, um, my caseworker, um, uh, knew that I was gay. Uh, you know, she told me at one point, you know, it's going to be tough to place you if, you know, you're going to continue to be this way. Um, and so I ended up spending the majority of my time in congregate care settings, these kind of group homes and residential treatment centers by age out of the system um, when I was 18. And then I spent the next uh, several months homeless, uh, living on the street uh, until I was able to um, go to college. And um, Texas has a very um, uh, backward on a couple of things, lots of things, but they have a really good um, um post foster care tuition waiver that allows you to go to college for free. Uh, so I was able to do that and um, ended up graduating and moving to Washington, D.C. to work on Capitol Hill. And what would you like for people to take away most from your story? Yeah, you know, I think that everything we do um, whenever we are, whenever we're parents, um, uh, whenever we have families, uh, is to prepare, you know, the young people that we're caring for to become good, successful 
self-sufficient adult. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what parents do. That's what families are for. Um, and even well into adulthood, you know, lots of folks who, um, you know, be listening to this you know, probably have at many times had to rely on parents after they turn 18 uh, for various things. When when you grow up the way that I did, um, when you're you're robbed of having that family environment, whenever you don't um, get adopted or you don't grow up in foster families and you, you grow up in uh, these congregate care settings, um, you you don't have that. And so it was so tough, um, you know, whenever I age out of the system, it's a miracle that I'm here today. It's been a long time on the streets whenever I did age out of, uh, of the system. Uh, yeah, I had to survive through the street economy. It was an incredibly tough thing. And so, um, you know, I think that um, uh, it, it's really important for us to emphasize um, making sure that we have as many families as possible for young folks you know, to be able to go to. Uh, we. We simply can't have people growing up in the system. We know, you know, um, based off of every statistic possible out there, more time young people spend in the foster care system, uh, the uh, more disproportionate their outcomes are. Um, and we just tend to do worse in, you know, everything across the spectrum. Employment, um, having healthy relationships. And it's just not fair. We've got to do a better job. We are taking these young people away from their families, and we're saying, you know what? We could do better than your families are caring for you. But oftentimes, we just don't. Um, and so, yeah, I think if anything, uh, you know, the experiences that I have um, uh, should illustrate that. Um, but what is sad is that these you know, these experiences, are, they're not uh, unique to just me. To children uh, who are growing up in foster care right now, who have grown up in foster care. And most of them um, will tell you stories that are quite similar, and that's just not right. Right. Agreed. Well, we really, truly, um, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate your willingness to share your story and your journey. Um, of course, it's the, the heart of why we do the work on Every Child Deserves a Family Act. So thank you so much for your willingness to, to be here and to share your story with us and, and those who are listening today. Um, James, I'll turn to you, and, and we would love to hear uh, some of, of your story, um, whatever you would like to share about your personal experiences in, in the child welfare system as well. Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me on today. Um, so you got a little bit of it in the bio. Um, I entered the foster care system at the age of four, uh, between the ages of four and seven. I had numerous, uh, or four and between four and six, I had numerous um, different households that I would went into. Um, by the time I was six, um, I was adopted um, into a household uh, where back in the 90s, um, Illinois, uh, late 90s, Illinois had a policy of uh, keeping siblings together no matter what. Uh, it was really uh, some of that child welfare, beginning of the child welfare policy that was really sibling-based, but it wasn't a sibling and evidence-based. And so I was placed with uh, two of my sisters uh, in a household that only wanted, the, only wanted the girls and didn't want anything to do with me. They already had um, their own sons. And so um, from there, you figure out that you're the unwanted child. And during the ages of seven to 13, um, I you know, experienced great ranges of abuse in that adopted household, 
um, without anybody intervening um, to sort of uh, rescue me. Um, by the age of uh, 14, I left the household myself um, by way of saying things that I knew would get me, um, you know, removed from the household. Um, and so um, within a year, I had four hospitalizations just so I could escape the abuse that I was going under. Um, by the uh, by, the end of the year, they gave up their parental rights and then fled the state of Illinois to Florida. And from there is sort of where my um, advocacy journey kicks off. Um, between the ages of 14 and eight, uh, 18, I was in intensive residential to sort of help, uh, you know, repair the brokenness that was inside of me um, after living in seven years of, of severe abuse. Um, and then it just went from residential to a transitional living program, then independent living opportunity to um, uh, and emancipation at eight at 21. Um, it's, it's one of the things that Illinois does right is that we keep kids until 21 here, no matter what um, sort of federal dollars they're bringing into the system. And so very lucky to have that. And, you know, between 18 and 21, I really took off um, using my story to help shape Illinois policy um, to sort of better the foster care system for those kids that necessarily um, everyone's sort of given up on, uh, you know, the, the high risk kids who can't find a placement or um, who simply nobody wants to put another dollar on because Statistically, they're not, um, you know, the ones that are going to succeed in, in normal eyes of succession. So um, from trouble to triumph is, you know, the the life story of myself. But um, it, I, it, it's always nice to, you know, sort of talk about the different aspects of child welfare, such as um, LGBT youth in care and how we can better serve as our LGBT youth in care so that they can have uh, better outcomes than their counterparts. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and the, I'm going to ask you the same question I had asked uh, Christopher. What um, what do you want people, what is the one thing that you would like people to take away most from your story? You know, that we all are, you know, every single foster kid has potential. Um, every single youth in care has potential. And it's just that sometimes that potential is bogged down by years of trauma. And you have to get through that year, those years of trauma before you start seeing that potential. But I have, you know, since, you know, being the, the president of the Foster Care Alumni uh, of America, Illinois chapter for the last five years, I have not met a single youth in care or alumni who, have, who I haven't seen potential in. And that, you know, if we are allowed to shine and, and show what sort of potential we have, um, I think we can really change the image of what a, what a youth in care is or, or what an alumni of the system is, because the only sort of images that people see of, um, you know, what a youth in care or a former youth in care are, are those images of, you know, that you see on the different cop dramas of, you know, Law and Order SVU or Criminal Minds of, 
you know, all foster kids turn into serial killers or all foster uh, kids turn into predators. And, you know, I've, I've toured the state of Illinois and I've spoken to thousands and thousands of alumni and youth in care, and I've not once ever ran into a, um, one of those characters on TV. And so um, if you allowed, youth in care can truly change the world that we're currently living in because we have those abilities to sort of walk into a room know who the good people are, know who the ones who we need to watch out for, but also, you know, put ourselves in, in, in different shoes and, and empathize better than most people can, in, in my opinion. It's a very good point. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Christopher, I'm going to turn back to you. As someone who openly identifies as LGBT and, as you said, was outed uh, as a, at a very young age in the foster care system, I'm just curious to hear a little from you about how that impacted your um, experience in the foster care system. As I think you know that Every Child Deserves a Family Act, one of the things it would do is prohibit discrimination of, of youth in foster care based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, especially in placement decisions. And so I just would like to hear a little more about your experience, specifically as it relates to your being LGBTQ. Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's it's really interesting. It was, it was such a double-edged sword. Um, uh, you know, in one hand, uh, it, it made it more challenging for my caseworker to place me, and I can understand why. Um, I mean, this is Texas uh, that I grew up in. Um, most of the agencies that we have that do work in this space are um, religious-based organizations, and so. Um, I think that a lot of the recruitment efforts you know, it, it, it tend to it tend to go out to folks who might take it in their home, and certainly that's a uh, that's a personal decision. And, uh, but where it leaves me and young people like me, and in particular, you know, when I think about um, the kids that suffer the most from this, I think about the trans kids that are in foster care. Um, that you know, that it's going to have such a tough time. Um, it, it leaves us um, with with no options other than to be placed in. Um, um, congregate care, a type of placement. And the sad reality is that Texas was uh, sued a national organization, Children's Rights, that came in, um, won a very big case uh, against the state. Um, one of the um, claims that they made that was, you know, proven factual was that they, we were placing kids in um, grossly inappropriate placements. We had young people who uh, had no behavioral problems, um, did not need any type of, you know, um, extensive therapeutic treatment, we were taking them and we were placing them in residential treatment centers uh, in these settings that are akin to prisons, you know, locked down. Um, you know, they tell you when to eat, tell you when to sleep. You go to school on campus, uh, you know, the doors magnetically shut. You know, you can't move from one section of the place to another. You don't uh, necessarily go outside without someone watching you or breathing down your neck. And what's, what's quite ironic about these places is that, in my, in my experience, this was where most of the abuse uh, tend to have took place. Um, I stayed in a lot of things in residential treatment centers, and they are some of the most abusive places you can think of. Um, I was uh, raped by uh, my caregivers um, um, multiple times in some of these placements. Um, I was uh, locked in um, um, solitary confinement type rooms. Sometimes for days, um, food's often used as as a punishment. You're medicated so much that you don't quite know what's going on. And the thing about a state like Texas is it's big. It's Panhandle, which is close by Oklahoma, 
but a lot of the placements uh, were not in rural, uh, you know, rural counties or rural places in Texas. So a lot of them were down in Houston, uh, down in Austin, San Antonio. I was miles and miles away from my caseworker. There wasn't anybody coming and checking on me. And so it was so tough to um, you know, have to be a child and to grow up with that and now into adulthood. These are still traumas that I have to work through sometimes and things that I have to sit and process. Um, and so it was, it, it was tough to be an LGBT, uh, you know, Q child in uh, Texas. Um, whenever I did get these, uh, to be placed with um, foster families, and there was only a you know, small handful, uh, they were oftentimes extremely you know, religious and just extremely oppressive. And, you know, I myself consider myself a spiritual, religious person, um, having to um, you know, spend spend my childhood um, when I'm supposed to be developing, when my brain is, you know, um, supposed to be uh, being nurtured and I'm supposed to be uh, loved by someone and accepted, um, constantly being told that I'm not enough, um, being abused and, you know, um, experiencing this cycle over and over again, um, and a number of placements up until adulthood, uh, you could see how that would, you know, create a, it's a dynamic where, you know, someone is just really, 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 um, you know, going to have a tough life. Thankfully, uh, I came out on the other side of it, and I'm super resilient. But they're just, they're just done a lot. A lot of us don't have the capacity to do that, and we see this even now. We have um, uh, laws that have been passed in Texas recently. You know, that basically give providers a license to discriminate uh, against families, and it's just going to make it even tougher for us to take children and put them into families when um, and this is a state that was um, sued recently. Um, uh, and then uh, one, uh, the organization that sued them won and got a, got a huge ruling on behalf of the children in Texas. And we're still going through the process of trying to implement some of these changes. And we, we have laws that, you know, that are being passed that are allowing for um, uh, child placement agencies to turn away families because maybe they are LGBT or they're straight or they're Muslim or whatever reason they want to. And we simply can't do that. Well, you know, the, the facts are that we don't have enough families. Um, we are putting children in a system that is creating this pipeline where they, they age out and they go you know, straight into homelessness or the criminal justice system. Uh, they're chronically underemployed, undereducated. Um, and, and those are simply facts. There's um, uh, um, a number of studies, a number of um, uh, um, you know, research that has been done that has uh, made it very clear that this is what is happening in the uh, child welfare system happening right underneath us. Uh, and that's just Absolutely. something that we have to change. We, we can't allow these young people to continue to go through this process. We, we agree wholeheartedly. And I think exactly what you just said is why um, Every Child Deserves a Family Act is, I think, more important than ever, especially in the face of the kinds of so-called religious liberty bills that you explained that just uh, passed in Texas. And James, is there anything that you would like um, to add to what Christopher said or share, um, you know, about your story and the importance of, of um, a law like Every Child Deserves a Family Act? Well, the thing is, is these kids are smart to the point that when when these, you know, religious liberty bills come out and, you know, let's let's call them for what they are, the discriminative policies um, that are coming out because there are agencies that, you know, follow it, non-discrimination agreements all the time. You know, you can't stop a, um, a physical disabled uh, person from becoming a foster parent or an adoptive parent. 
you can't stop a woman from being a foster parent um, or adoptive parent. Um, but yet it's okay to stop a, a couple who, you know, is doing something that most people won't want, don't want to do to, to even consider doing the training to become a foster parent and adoptive parent. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's, it, it's just discrimination underneath a religious liberties title. And so uh, when we look at these, we don't only have to look at the, the indirect, or I mean the direct, the victims of, it, of a um, religious liberties bill, but we have to look at the indirect victims. And, and those victims are the children. If the state want to pass this legislation, then what they are telling the kids who are currently in care, well, if you're gay, you don't deserve a family. Or if you're transgender, you don't deserve a family. Um, which I think is just taking child welfare back. Because the last time I checked, everybody needs somebody to call when they're having a bad day or somebody to you know, be as simple as a medical proxy if they're unable to make those decisions. And whether it be by blood or by paper, that's what these kids need. Um, and so it's not only discriminating against the, the, the parents or the potential parents, it's openly discriminating against the, the young people that they're servicing by telling them that they are non-deserving of a family. Um, you know, and I think this is one of the good things about living in Illinois versus other places in the, in the country is that Illinois has very, very strong, um, anti-discrimination laws in regards to our social services. Um, and I take pride in, in, in knowing that, um, an LGBT couple is not going to face discrimination at the same rate, um, when if they were in another state now there is a there are problems in illinois um lack of availability at the majority you know illinois is not just chicago um illinois you know it can it takes about from chicago to get to the middle of the state about three hours to travel that distance and so we go into the rural parts of the country where the lack of resources for our lgbt parents are not there because the majority of them uh, a majority of the contractors that we have that, you know, we contract out to provide training, foster parent training, are religious based. Now, they don't discriminate against, you know, sexual orientation. However, I think we as a community have been hurt so bad by religion that it's hard for us to even go into you know, a church who might be opening and affirming, but we still have that tra traumatic experience with churches and religion that we don't even want to cross that, you know, bridge to, to, you know, become foster parents. And so what we're finding is that although we have these non-discrimination policies, it's the people who we contract with to do the training is, is where the issue arises with reason why Illinois cannot uh, get LGBT parents to um, be, uh, potentially become foster parents because downstate, a lot of those trainings are held in churches, um, synagogues, and other places of worship versus Chicago, 
where they're held at agencies and other more open and affirming places. No, thank you for that. Um, and I just can't say how much we appreciate for the work that you're doing. Um, it's really incredible what you've both uh, been through and overcome and your strength and resilience to go on and, and do the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for that. And um, with that, we will close. And until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together. Thank you.